the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, July 19, 1869. I'm Sally Helm. In the Sierra Nevada mountains, naturalist John Muir watches the world wake up. The treetops begin to glow. The sun burns the edges of the mountains. He writes, everything awakening, alert and joyful. The birds begin to stir. Every pulse beats high. Every life cell rejoices. The very rocks seem to thrill with life. You can feel something in John Muir waking up, too. He's becoming so taken with this landscape that he will decide to stay in the Yosemite Valley, working as a shepherd and living off bread and coffee, mutton and beans. And soon, his published descriptions of the valley will start to change American life by advancing an idea that is taking shape in a lot of people's minds. Maybe nature is more than just a resource for exploiting. Maybe this wildness is something we should protect. Today, John Muir. How did this bard of the wilderness collide with the political forces of his day and help bring about the national parks as we know them? And how did he change the way all of us think about the natural world? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. John Muir's first visit to Yosemite, it is not all poetry and birdsong and pretty sunrises. Muir wanders in the middle of winter and there are bears there, a lot of snow, nearly starves to death. Dean King is the author of a new book about Muir called Guardians of the Valley. He's got some bread, and he'll take either tea or coffee and sometimes meat juice and go out for four or five days. Meat juice? What is that? was an extract of meat that was common as a nutrient and elixir back in (laughs) in that time. And uh, I'm sure it did have some nutritional value, but (laughs) it was not particularly appetizing to others. Muir was known for this, taking terrible food when he went camping, because he was just so entranced with the natural world that he didn't care. He arrives in Yosemite as a 30-year-old college dropout. He later described it as enrolling instead in the University of Wilderness. And he takes a job as a shepherd, earning $30 a month plus room and board. Muir starts spending almost all of his time outdoors, taking his sheep up and down the mountainsides. But early on, he comes to realize that 
the sheep, which he calls hooved locusts, are devouring all the greenery up there. And not only what you see, but the roots and all. And it's not just the hooved locusts. White settlers have begun tramping through the valley, too, and driving the indigenous Miwok tribe from their land. The Miwok, Muir writes, seem to have learned this wonderful way of walking unseen. These new settlers, they don't get that. Miners are blasting water cannons at the mountains, searching for gold. The year after Muir moves to Yosemite, the Transcontinental Railroad finally reaches California. In its wake, it's left millions of dead buffalo and felled trees. America was really busily devouring its natural resources. Because, you know, progress. The land can be used to advance human society. A lot of people think that is what it's for. But not John Muir. He has taken a different view of the natural world ever since he was a kid growing up in a small town in Scotland. His grandfather loved nature and took Muir on walks along the coast, and they would find birds' nests and look at the waves crashing on the shore. The young Muir starts carrying in his pocket the works of Robert Burns, a romantic poet who wrote about the voice of great nature and about cherishing every living thing. Burns early on was lamenting stepping on a flower. But now, John Muir is an adult, a shepherd. And he has taken his hoofed locusts all across the landscape. They're definitely stepping on flowers and devouring the grasses, none of which is good for the health of the valley. Look, if the sheep are eating up the plants by the roots, there's going to be erosion, it's going to fill the streams, and that's going to then flow into Yosemite Valley. It'll flood. And Muir is taking note of other threats to the valley, including tourists. Canny entrepreneurs eventually start putting up new buildings and attractions to serve them, like a ramshackle pub with a huge dance floor that juts out into a lake. Muir is appalled. This is not his way of appreciating nature. He later writes that... Only by going alone in silence, without baggage, can one truly get into the heart of the wilderness. All other travel is mere dust and hotels and baggage and chatter. He was one of our first hippies. You know, he's seeing God and the refraction of the light through the waterfall. Muir is hiking across the landscape, scribbling down accounts of what he sees. He uses a quill pen made from a golden eagle feather he found on the ground. More and more, he feels he's a part of the natural world. He climbs a tree in a storm to experience the storm. And it's this harrowing wind and rain and lightning, and, and he's up there swaying back and forth. He just wants to know what it's like to be a tree. You know, it's, it's really incredible. It's helping him develop a philosophy of the land. He had this mystical, religious experience where he came to realize that, for him, this was the greatest manifestation of God in a, a holy place, in a place that he thought that we could come to find spiritual fulfillment. So, when he sees it being destroyed by tourists and by his own sheep, he thinks, this can't go on. Mir saw that something needed to be done. But... 
what? It's not like the Yosemite Valley was totally unprotected. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln had granted it to the state of California for public use, resort, and recreation. It was one of the first protected areas of its kind in the United States. But that protected area is only a small part of what is now Yosemite National Park. It stretches a few dozen square miles. The entire park today is nearly 1,200 square miles. And Muir's vision has given him this insight that everything is connected. You can't just save the little valley. That's not how nature works. It's one whole living, breathing entity that uh, won't survive if you just keep a piece of it. Mm -hmm. Muir said that saving the valley without saving the hills around it and the the streams and rivers around it was like saving the palm of a hand without saving the fingers. You know, you you couldn't do a lot with it. it. It wouldn't work properly. And so that's what he's going to campaign for. Save the land around the valley, too. Expand this government protection. This was an untested idea at the time. How do we do that? How do we pass laws to protect it? Who's going to enforce those laws? And John Muir, he's not like a senator. He's a semi-hermit living 2,300 miles from Washington, D.C. and surviving on meat juice. But there is one thing he can do. He can write. His essays start appearing in national publications. He's looking closely at the wilderness and describing it. He even sees something that some scientists have missed. Based on his measurements and observations, he's confirmed a controversial theory that the Sierra Nevada mountains were carved out by ancient glaciers. So he writes up his findings and publishes them. The greatest scientist in California calls him an ignoramus and mere sheep herder and really denigrates him, but Muir was right. And other scientists rallied around him. So he really became the bard of the valley in the Sierra Nevada and developed a following that way. And he begins to lead his readers to the questions of preservation. He writes articles with titles like God's First Temples, How Shall We Preserve Our Forests? Articles that urge people to action. Waste and pure destruction are already taking place at a terrible rate, he says. Whether our loose-jointed government is really able or willing to do anything in the matter remains to be seen. And for a long time, nothing happens. All those things that he's observed are still going on, and he's frustrated by it. But change is coming. One of the editors that Muir has been working with is a man named Robert Underwood Johnson. Johnson first reached out in the fall of 1877. He was a young editor at what would become The Century magazine. And he was like, will you write a piece for me, John Muir? Maybe about California farm life? Muir turned that idea down. He didn't like being told what to write. But something good came out of it. The two men became pen pals. They were a great complement to one another. Muir was more able to go out into wilderness and, and spend long periods of time alone observing. Johnson was probably a bit more of a social creature. He would have a, a salon-like atmosphere at his home. In May of 1889, Robert Underwood Johnson travels to California on business. 
He and Muir have been exchanging letters for years, but they've never met. So Johnson invites Muir to his hotel. The two of them meet at the famous Palace Hotel where Johnson's staying, and Muir gets lost in the hallways and starts yelling, Johnson, where are you? you know, he tells Johnson, look, I can find my way around the mountains, but you put me in a sterile hotel like this, and, and I'm lost. In Johnson's hotel room, they fall into an easy conversation. I think they really hit it off right from the start. Muir has something big to say, but he bides his time. They talk about a series Johnson's editing about gold mining in California. And then Muir says what he came to say. Johnson, you got to come out to Yosemite Valley with me and you need to see it. Doesn't take much arm twisting. Johnson agrees and he wraps up some of the editorial work he's doing and the two of them head out to Yosemite Valley. It's June of 1889, 20 years after Muir woke up to that joyful sunrise in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The two of them go up out of the valley into Tuolumne Meadows because Muir wants to show them the wilds up there and the beauty of that part of the Sierra Nevada. And Muir takes Johnson down into what will become Muir Gorge, where there are just granite walls and water flowing down into a river, very, very wild. And, and Johnson is just amazed at how he can move through the stubborn manzanita bushes that um, are very prickly and grab onto him. Johnson sees Muir in his element. Muir wants him to see, of course, the, the grandeur of it, but also what's happening to it. What are they seeing that is worrying as they come into Yosemite? As they're approaching the valley, they see heaps of garbage have been left behind by miners and shepherds, and they see that tourist houses, some have been built in, in shabby ways, Others have cut down trees and erected hog pens. There are horses grazing willy-nilly around the valley. Roads have been carved through the sequoia groves. Muir points out a new first-class hotel and saloon. And he tells Johnson, one developer has a plan to attract more tourists by projecting colored lights onto the waterfalls. Johnson asks Muir, where are the mountain meadows that you once described? What did you write? Those fields of golden and purple bloom? Muir tells him, eaten by sheep. They're appalled by this lack of attention to the landscape there in this really spectacular place. And one night around the campfire, Johnson says, look, Muir, you write me two articles. I'm going to run them. Then I'm going to take them down to Washington, D.C. and put them on the desk of every congressman. We're going to get a bill passed to protect this area. We're going to create a national park. That's essentially what Muir has been after for a decade. And no results. He tells Johnson that, from what he's seen so far, the love of nature among Californians is desperately moderate. So he's a bit skeptical, but he trusts Johnson and agrees to write the articles. Those articles appear in print the following summer. They're full of details that bring Yosemite alive. Muir advocates for the creation of Yosemite National Park, which would be 35 times the size of the valley controlled by the state. And on October 1st, 1890, Johnson sends a wire from Washington, D.C. The bill has passed. Johnson tells Muir, your very outspoken reference to the depredations in that region was key to the victory. But of course, 
Muir's been writing for years. Johnson's connections and social graces and political savvy, that was key, too. It's a watershed moment for Muir and for environmentalism, really. Now, this new approach to nature exists, this thing called environmentalism. But not everyone agrees on exactly how the government should be guided by it. There's lots of discussion. And by discussion, I mean heated debate. And of course, John Muir will be in the thick of it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's the summer of 1903, and the man in the White House is Theodore Roosevelt, a true lover of the outdoors. He can't get enough of hunting and adventuring. He became president back in 1901 after President McKinley was assassinated. True to form, Vice President Roosevelt was hiking in the Adirondack Mountains when he got the news. He had to rush back to the Capitol to be sworn in. And this summer, 1903, he's setting out on a long West Coast tour. For him to go out and really shake hands and speechify from the back of the train was something he was very good at. Before he leaves D.C., Theodore Roosevelt hears from Robert Underwood Johnson, John Muir's editor. And said, President Roosevelt, when you go out there, you're going to want to go to Yosemite Valley, of course, and you need John Muir as your guide. And Roosevelt had heard of Muir and, and knew of his writing and said, sure, I would love to do that. Roosevelt boards a buggy to begin the last leg of his journey to the valley. Sitting right behind him is John Muir. His job is to tell the president about the waterfalls and ravines that they're seeing out the window. And on May 15th, the group arrives at Yosemite National Park. And there's a whole other group there ready to have a big banquet and celebration for him. A banquet with a famous chef and a fireworks display. But Roosevelt? He says, no, you know, I want to go camping with John Muir out <laughs> in the wilderness. I need to be alone for a little while. Well, not totally alone. The president brings with him two park rangers and a packer. And also, of course, John Muir. I think the two guys really hit it off. Muir even ignites a dead tree so that he can see the exploding flames. They're like young boys enjoying the wilderness together. And so they bond on that level. Muir and Roosevelt sit by a campfire eating fried chicken off tin plates. 
they bed down under blankets near the base of Bridal Veil Falls. And they stand on the solid rock of Glacier Point, looking out over the distant pines. That moment becomes a famous photo. Roosevelt is in riding pants and a heavy Western coat, looking like the outdoorsman he wants everyone to know he is. And next to him is tall, gangly John Muir in a three-piece suit. He looks like an academic. Or with his long gray beard, he could pass as a prophet. One thing I love about the photo, and you really have to look closely to see it, is that uh, Muir has a sprig of flower in his lapel. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he thought this was sort of uh, the embodiment of him having that little delicate piece of nature in his lapel. Right, that poet that he'd had in his pocket back as a kid who didn't want to step on a flower. Exactly, exactly. By the time the camping trip is over... Muir has left an impression on the president. And when he leaves the woods, just as soon as he can, Roosevelt wires D.C. and says, I want to protect more of the California mountains. But Muir and Roosevelt don't agree on everything. Muir, who is not bashful, stands right up to President Roosevelt and tells him, you know, when are you going to get over all this childish hunting like you do? You don't need to be doing this, but we do need to preserve nature. And Roosevelt is very diplomatic, but of course, he's going to continue to hunt. It's a true love of his. The two men both love nature, but they don't totally agree on how best to manage it. Muir says, we can use nature to help mankind, but largely, we should preserve it so that people can feel wonder at its beauty and awe at how grand it is. Roosevelt agrees in some cases, but he's also about using nature to serve humanity, like with hunting or public works projects. For those things, nature needs to be conserved. You have two strains of environmentalism meeting here. Roosevelt's, which will be more associated with the practical use of nature, using our natural resources to make life more comfortable and easier. In contrast to Muir, who wanted to preserve nature more for its spiritual value, for people to go out and connect with their souls and find meaning in life. These are largely theoretical debates. Until something happens that literally shakes the bedrock of California. In the early morning of April 18th, 1906, San Franciscans wake up to an earthquake. Houses collapse, and 80% of the city is destroyed, most of it by fire. And you fight fire with water. San Francisco has needed a better municipal water source for a long time. But after the earthquake, that need feels especially urgent. And San Franciscans begin to look to Yosemite. They saw that uh, maybe the federal park would be a great source because where the Tuolumne River exits Yosemite National Park, it narrows down to a, a mouth that would be very easy to dam. The valley that people are eyeing for that dam is called Hetch Hetchy. John Muir has said that it is, quote, the most attractive and wonderful valley within the bounds of the Great Yosemite National Park. 
other than Yosemite Valley itself. This is a beautiful valley. Muir has explored Hetch Hetchy from the early days before San Francisco expressed any interest in it. And now his argument goes like this. Yosemite National Park should be off limits to development, period. That is the whole point of protecting it by law. And besides, if you dam this valley, what comes next? The whole place could be ruined. On the other hand... San Francisco has a very convincing argument that we need fresh water for our city. The city's just burned down, partly due to not having good sources of fresh water to fight the fire. And the citizens are paying too much money to private uh, businesses for the fresh water that they have. The argument rages across the country. It even creates a split within the Sierra Club, the outdoor organization that Muir has founded. But the decision-making power lies with Congress. So Muir rallies his supporters and launches a grassroots letter-writing campaign. They say you can tap other water sources. You don't have to destroy this beautiful valley. 5,000 letters were landing on each of the desks of the congressmen, and they they were throwing up their hands. What is this? They had never seen this before. This um, incredible outcry of the people to preserve Hetch Hetchy Valley and not to dam it up and destroy it. But dam supporters are signing petitions and writing letters, too. Like a San Francisco women's club that says... Someone who adores every bush and tree and would sacrifice the rights and needs of a great city is irrational and unjust. Another argues Hetch Hetchy might look just as beautiful as a dam as it does as a valley. You had William Randolph Hearst and his newspaper empire fighting the Sierra Club. They would produce a newspaper for the day of the vote in Congress to determine the fate of Hetch Hetchy and And when each congressman arrived at their desk, that newspaper was sitting there telling them that they must vote in favor of San Francisco. The debate grows so intense that a Missouri senator wonders aloud, why is a two-square-mile patch of land plunging the country into hysteria? Public opinion may be split, but in Congress, it is not close. The Senate votes 43 to 25 in favor of the dam. The New York Times bemoans the verdict with the headline, One National Park Lost. Johnson is crestfallen and Muir's telling Johnson, don't worry, we did what was right, we fought the good fight, and it's going to prevail eventually. As Muir writes in his journal, the people are now aroused. The controversy over Hetch Hetchy has engaged thousands of Americans in debates about the environment. Muir wouldn't have dreamed of that when he first arrived in Yosemite all those years before. And sure enough, while they lost that battle, they would win the war. The Hetch Hetchy Bill is signed in December of 1913. On Christmas Eve the next year, Muir dies of pneumonia. But two years later, Congress establishes the National Park Service to protect the then 14 national parks and to preserve them from overdevelopment. The single most important thought that I think Muir brought to us was that if you bring people to nature, they'll love nature and they'll protect nature. And this is really the proof of that. Today, the U.S. has 63 national parks. The year Muir died, 15,000 people visited Yosemite. In 2022, 
that number was over 3.6 million. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Dean King, author of Guardians of the Valley, John Muir, and the Friendship That Saved Yosemite. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady, fact-checked by Nate Barksdale and Catherine Newhan, and sound designed by Dan Rosato. You heard some of Dan's own field recordings from visits to U.S. national parks throughout this episode. History This Week is also produced by Corinne Wallace, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Jonah Buchanan. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.